I'll start off with most of you are going to know the story of Martin Luther and his courage in taking on the most powerful institution of his day, which was the Roman Catholic Church. Although Luther ignited the flame of the Protestant Reformation, we often overlook his early monastic life, which was replete with deep struggles for a surety in his salvation. Catholic theology at the time taught that while Christ had suffered and died to provide salvation as a free gift, grace was actually only a spiritual boost. God gave it to us if we didn't make it 100%, and then by our own works and righteousness, he would come down and meet us with his grace. If you did enough good deeds, then he would use them to cancel out your sin. Prayer, acts of penitence, confession, fasting, and other avenues of self-discipline, along with faith in Christ, were seen as means to eternal life with God. Their mantra at the time was, after all that you can do, then faith. Now, through this theological lens, Luther lived and greatly feared divine judgment, hell, and the Almighty himself. Luther prayed for hours on end, he fasted, he went without sleep, and subjugated himself to great physical discomfort. At times, he even flogged himself, all in order to make his body subservient to spiritual principles and truths. Yet Luther found no peace. Luther was still afraid of God and tied his assurance and peace with God to his spiritual performance. So let me ask you, how do you view God? Is he a benevolent dictator? Is he a buddy you walk the beach with? How do you view God? And always remember, how we think about God matters. I think consciously or subconsciously, we are all sometimes like Luther. We take good things like spiritual disciplines or good works, and we make them ultimate things. With these ultimate things, we try to self-validate ourselves before God to show him we're worthy of the grace he's imparted on us, mostly because we think he's angry with us for our sin. Sometimes worse, we even think that if we're diligent in our spiritual disciplines, we'll receive some form of material blessing. So today we're going to wrap up chapter 9, and in today's text, we're going to address again the truth of the finality of the atoning work of Christ and finding our rest in him. Would you please turn in your copy of God's word to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll read verses 23 through 28. Would you please stand? For the reading. And as is our tradition here, for those of you visiting today, when I finish reading our text, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I'd like you to reply, thanks be to God. Verse 23 through 28. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bring the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we saw through the first eight chapters of Hebrews, the author has been hammering home a singular point. Christ is better. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, Zach focused on the limitations, shortcomings, and faults of the old first covenant. Last week, in verses 11 through 22, Tim taught Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, which secured our eternal redemption by his own blood. Today, in verses 23 through 28, for those of you taking notes, I will cover three main points in the body of the text, followed by two practical applications. The first point will be the true temple is heaven itself, verses 23 24. Point two will be our sin is conclusively canceled, verse 25 26. And point three will be we can eagerly rest in Christ until he appears again, verse 27 28. Dr. Walter Martin founder of the Christian Research Institute and also author of the book Kingdom of the Colts, said this about the book of Hebrews. We have to understand that the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews, telling them to stop acting like Hebrews. Now, it's in this context that we have to understand that the writer of Hebrews was battling as he addressed Jews about Christ. For roughly 1,400 years before Christ's birth, Jews adhered to the sacrificial system as laid out in Leviticus. So the author is literally deconstructing 1,400 years of Jewish tradition and ceremonialism and steering them towards Christ as superior to their old ways. Now, at the time the book of Hebrews was written, there was still a daily morning and evening sacrifice on the altar in the courtyard along with other individual offerings, all pointing forward to the great once-a-year propitiatory sacrifice in the Day of Atonement. Now, in contrast to the daily sacrifices, there is only one day a year when sacrificial blood was offered on the mercy seat to propitiate the wrath of the Almighty God for the nation of Israel. As Leviticus 16 describes in great detail, On the annual Day of Atonement, propitiation was made by means of a substitutionary sacrifice. The ritual started by the high priest washing and getting on his ceremonial dress, followed by sacrificing a young bull to atone for his sins and the sins of his household. Then two goats were taken by lots. One was chosen to be the sin offering, and the other was to be the scapegoat. The blood of the sin offering would be used to sprinkle the ark and its lid, which was known as the mercy seat. 
Then the outer parts of the tabernacle of meetings and the main altar would also be sprinkled. Then the high priest would then take the other goat and while laying his hands on its head, confess the sin of the Israelites. This was the scapegoat, and after transferring the sins of the nation onto the scapegoat, it was released into the wilderness, bearing all the inequities of the people. This brings us to our first point, which is the true temple is heaven itself. Verse 23 and 24. Thus, or more literally, so then, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So we start verse 23 actually referring back to verse 22, where we were told that everything is purified with blood, without, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So then, these earthly copies needed to be purified as the sacrificial system established in Leviticus chapter 16. But these things were merely an earthly copy, a type and shadow of the heavenly realities. You see, Christ did not enter into holy places made with hands, where mere men would enter into the temple. Christ entered into the true temple, which is heaven itself. The earthly temple was a copy of the true things, or more literally, an antitype. In verse 24, we read, copies of the true things. The Greek word that's used for copies is antitupon, meaning something that is formed after a model or a pattern, but answers to the original. So it's accountable to the original. The earthly temple was the form, and heaven was the pattern that it was modeled after. So the writer is steering us to the true original, which is heaven itself. Now the tabernacle, and later the temple, was an antitype of heaven, where the divine presence of the Lord dwelt, along with the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered by the mercy seat, as we've been hearing in great detail this whole chapter. But the Jews knew it as the place of propitiation. God told Moses in Exodus 10.22 that there, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So in the temple, the Lord literally dwelt above the ark. And when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies alone to offer intercession for the people, it was representative of the entrance of Christ our Redeemer into heaven. As the Jewish high priest appeared before the presence of the Lord in the temple, now Christ appears in the presence of the Lord on our behalf in heaven, interceding for us. You see, we do not depend on a high priest here on earth who annually visits the Holy of Holies in a temporary sanctuary. We depend on the heavenly high priest who has entered once and for all into the eternal sanctuary. There he represents us before God in our past, present, and future. Now we see this affirmed in other parts of Scripture. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and was becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to vanish away. All this illusionary language is affirming to us that since Christ has entered into heaven to intercede for his people, the era of the temple and its types and shadows has come to an end and is ready to vanish away. Now, the original hearers would have really struggled with these words, but how much more were their eyes opened to these words and validated when the temple was physically destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70 and the sacrificial system of Leviticus never to be practiced again. Which leads us to our second point. Christ is conclusive, excuse me, our sin is conclusively canceled. Verse 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The earthly high priest had to enter repeatedly every year to sacrifice for the sins of the people using the blood of animals. Because this ceremony had to be yearly gives evidence that these atonement sacrifices were not effective to remove guilt once and for all. And we'll see later in Hebrews 10.3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See that? There's a reminder. It's constantly in front of them. And no matter how many times the earthly high priest would go into sacrifice, it was always inadequate to take away sins conclusively. On the Day of Atonement, all Israel was made innocent until the next day. But Christ does not need to go in annually because he's the great high priest. The sacrifice of himself and his blood is the final sacrifice. Christ on the cross said, it is finished. So his entrance into heaven to intercede on our behalf affirms that indeed, it is finished. Christ suffered only once. His blood was shed only once. And in his suffering and death, sin was once and for all time conquered. Now, let's look at the second half of verse 26, which says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, if we break down three words, um, the word once and put away that we use in the English into a more uh, literal definition from what the Greek is trying to portray, uh, the word hapax, which does indeed mean once, but the whole idea is conclusively not requiring any repetition. And then 
athedasis, meaning put away. It's actually a conjunction of two words. The primary is athetasis, which is away, meaning canceled or to render void. So we could read the second half of verse 26 more definitionally, literally, if I can use those two words together. He has appeared conclusively at the end of the ages to cancel sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or we could say it this way. He has appeared conclusively, not requiring any repetition, at the end of the ages to cancel and render void sin by the sacrifice of himself. Brothers and sisters, Christ has conclusively canceled our sin. Philip Hughes, in his commentary on Hebrews, says it this way. Put away is used in a technical legal sense, meaning to annul or to cancel. This nullification, moreover, is comprehensive. It covers sin in its totality, without qualification, in every form and degree, and also in every age of human history. This means that when Christ died, he paid the penalty for the sins of all his elect, both before and after the cross. Again, Christ has conclusively canceled our sin. If we go back to verse 12 in the same chapter, Paul writes, He has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. One time securing an eternal redemption. Peter affirms this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Again, Christ has conclusively canceled our sin. Now, if we go back to the introduction, I think probably many of us struggle with discouragement because of the sin that we have in our life. We limit enjoying the Christian life because we're convinced God is angry with us. We behave as though we're released from jail by God's grace. But now we're on parole, and God is our parole officer. And we live and act as though we need to prove to him through our works that we are worthy of being set free by his grace. But since Christ conclusively canceled our sin, past, present, and future, we can rest and have stability in Christ's once-for-all final sacrifice. Point three. We can eagerly rest in Christ until he appears again. Verse 27 and 28. And just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is not news, but the mortality rate is one for one. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all of us here in this room today will succumb to the physical death that was brought to us through Adam 
as Paul says in Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of this, the natural order is that men die once as a consequence for sin. But Christ died once as a perfect sacrifice for that sin. As men face judgment upon death, so Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us upon our death. In verse 27, the author also eliminates some of the worldly post-mortem views that are popular today. The first one, reincarnation, which is the belief that in continual rebirth, the soul upon death, continually you get rebirthed into another entity. So it just continues on until you perfect that life. And one even popular in the church today is annihilationism, which teaches that when a person dies, his soul simply no longer exists. The reality throughout Scripture and supported here today in our passage is that when we die, we will face judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. Now the good news is, those who believe in Christ will be declared innocent before God and ushered into the heavenly realms. But those who do not know Christ will be cast into the outer darkness to await the final great white throne judgment of Revelation. As Christians, to know this, that we should be eagerly awaiting Christ's second coming, is an encouraging conclusion to this section of Scripture. Christ has already bore our sins conclusively, without need of repetition, the righteous for the unrighteous. And those who have faith in Christ should be eagerly awaiting the second coming, where we will enter into the new heaven and new earth at the consummation of the age to come. Those who know the joy of salvation should also wait and know the hope of the Lord's second coming. Let me give you two points of practical application. First, find your peace and your rest in Christ and his conclusively finished works. Let me say that again. Find your peace and your rest in Christ and his conclusively finished works. Christ says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So how do you have peace if you look at God as your parole officer? Christ now appears for us in God's presence. He has constant access to God. Christ represents us, prays for us, and accomplishes what we could never do on our own. You have the great high priest ministering on your behalf. And the work of Christ is a completed work, final and eternal. On the basis of this completed work, he is ministering now in heaven on our behalf. This is called positional righteousness. This is righteousness that we receive from God. It is given to us when we trust in Christ, and it's based on Christ's sacrificial death. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. 
positional or imputed righteousness, it's not earned. It is given. It's a gift of grace that we receive by faith. John Calvin says this about positional righteousness. Our union with Christ removes the fear of God's wrath. It also removes any reason to boast in our obedience. There is nothing God would ever accept as good apart from Christ. Martin Luther. For inasmuch as the saints are always aware of their sins and seek righteousness from God in accord with his mercy, for this very reason they are always regarded as righteous by God. Now, of course, we want to live righteously. We want to avoid sin. The whole concept of James one twenty two, right? Do not merely listen to the word and so to deceive yourselves. Do what it says, okay? But do not let your assurance and peace with God be tethered to how well you are performing. We still have sin. We're still sinners. Luther said it this way, and I'm going to butcher it in the Latin for you, and then I'll recuperate in the English. Luther said, simul ustis et peccator, which means, <laughs> in English, simultaneously justified and sinner. And Paul also says this in Romans 7.15. He says it this way. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. But see, by the means of imputation and by faith in Christ, whose righteousness is that now transferred to our account, we're considered just or righteous. Now this is the very heart of the gospel. So please, friends, do not live in fear. Let not your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Last point, point two. Remember, your good works is the evidence, not the cause of your assurance. Again, your good works is the evidence, not the cause of your assurance. Let your good works and obedience come out of your gratitude that you have for Christ's finished work on the cross. This is called practical righteousness. This is doing what is right. This is when Christians practice the position we have when we trust in Christ's finished work. Again, this is what we do and practice the position that we have when we trust in Christ's finished work. This builds discipline, we build skill, and we live in alignment with God's standards, which is the Ten Commandments. Scripture repeatedly admonishes us to pursue what is right. You see, biblically, the safety and assurance we have in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice should be our motivators for obedience. Our obedience should be driven by delight, not dread. Again, John Calvin. To claim any credit for our good works steals glory that only belongs to the Father, we have every reason to rejoice and continue in our labor of love, knowing that every act of obedience will be clothed in Christ's righteousness 
and we will be pleasing and will be pleasing to our Father. We must also be careful never to compare our good works with others, for all human works, all human works, are unacceptable apart from Christ. Now, as we come to a close, we're coming full circle back to Luther and his fear of the Almighty God in hell. Luther's breakthrough moment came in 1512 while he was studying Scripture. Specifically, he was preaching through Romans. And with great joy, he finally realized that God's righteousness is not just a boost to help us become righteousness, but first and foremost, it's the declaration that we are without guilt or sin because of Christ's completed work on the cross. Through the truth of the gospel, Luther was finally able to be at peace with God. And it was only after he found peace with God that he was able to be a useful tool for God and go on to literally change the world. If anything, hear these last words. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge your debt of sin. Now let your good works be done out of gratitude towards God and be evidence of a true and lively faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning, studying your word. Please cause it to weigh on our hearts, transform our minds, and apply it to our lives. In Christ we pray these things. Amen.